Hey guys, thanks for listening. Uh, you, we're about to start episode episode twenty of the Romantic About Baseball podcast. My name is Adam McKinnon, um, your co-host. Before the episode gets started, I wanted to uh, let everybody know today's subject is a little bit heavier than our normal uh, our normal fare. Uh, we are going to be discussing domestic violence, which you know will include um, a lot of uh, conversation about domestic violence, descriptions of dom- incidents of domestic violence. It's a little heavier than normal, is what I'm saying. So, uh, in the description of this podcast, will be some resources. If you or someone you know you believe may be a victim of domestic violence, uh, also keep in mind that our direct messages are always open. If there's, if you anyone needs any, uh, if there's any need of support. So enjoy the episode, but, uh, keep in mind, uh, to, uh, check out the description of the podcast for the additional resources. Welcome to another edition of the Romantic About Baseball podcast. We are episode 20. Uh, Jim, our podcast can almost drink. Um, It's real close. Yeah, it's going to need to probably. Uh, And uh, I am your co-host, Adam McKinnon, joined as always by my uh, co-host, Jim Passon Jr. Jim? Hi, guys. Uh, Good to be back as always here with you, Adam. But uh, we've got ourselves a serious subject we got to take care of today. We do. we got to take care of some adult business. We're going to be introducing our guest after the first segment today. But um, I wanted to uh, start off and uh, just uh, tackle it head on. Uh, We're going to be discussing domestic violence. In ba- and uh, specifically in baseball, it's a, a, an issue that seems to have been cropping up. We're going to push aside, you know, it kind of makes sign stealing and things like that seem a little bit trivial in uh, the grand scope of things. So um, what I wanted to do was kind of just shine a light on this particular issue. And, uh, you know, it starts with, to me, it starts with knowing whom we're talking about. And so um, what I wanted to do is, is since 2016, I wanted to just kind of, you know, name some names and talk about some of the players and some of the incidents that have uh, come under the, uh, the latest, um, I guess you could say, I don't want to call it an addition, but the uh, latest agreement uh, under the collective bargaining with uh, the Major League Baseball Players Association and some of the names that have been implicated in domestic violence, um, you know, incidents. And uh, these players may not, some of them may not have even been investigated, excuse me, may not have been suspended, may not have faced any legal implications, but the uh, gist of it is that there there have been credible uh, accusations against them. And so um, 
These names include, um, but are, and to, unfortunately to this day are not limited to, um, Aroldis Chapman, Yasiel Puig, Jose Reyes, Hector Oliveira, which if you may not may or may not remember Hector Oliveira, uh, the, um, there, this is a gentleman who did face uh, criminal action afterwards, afterwards of his incident and uh, ultimately derailed his entire career. Derek Norris, Stephen Wright, Miguel Sano, Jose Torres, Roberto Ozuna, whom of course uh, made headlines uh, indirectly after the um, Brandon Tobman incident, um, and then uh, Addison Russell, whom we'll get to a little bit later, uh, probably one of the more public cases in all of this, uh, Odubel Herrera, who I believe was just recently released by the Philadelphia Phillies after signing a multi-million dollar extension. Uh, Julio Urias, Jurius Familia, most recently Domingo Herman, and even more recently and maybe even unofficially so far, Sam Di reliever, free agent reliever Sam Dyson. Uh, who was implicated and uh, through a social media post through his uh, ex-girlfriend's cat uh, um, for uh, abuse. So, you know, and since 2016, the Major League Baseball has been working with uh, organization Futures Without Violence. <coughs> it's a nonprofit uh, helping, you know, work with uh, players, managers, coaches, and, and in their domestic violence training program through the Major League Baseball Players Association. And Jim, I know I'm talking a lot, but I kind of wanted to touch on a couple of things in addition to that list. Um, two of the players on that list, um, uh, you know, pr have not been, did not face any sort of re uh, action. And that would be Yasiel Puig and Miguel Sano. The shortest suspensions under this new agreement were belong to Stephen Wright and Juris Familia, both who received just 15 games each. The longest belonging to Jose Torres, uh, who faced a 100 games. And, um, you know, some of these instances, you know, when you talk about them, for example, um, you know, Aroldis Chapman, uh, his accusations uh, stemming from him being in the garage and, uh, supposedly and, firing, and uh, shooting a firearm in, in, the in his house. Uh, in the presence of his of his spouse, uh, when you talk about um, uh, you know Addison Russell, like I said, you know the accusations coming out through uh, his wife's uh, social media through Instagram and, and the blog. Jose Reyes, probably one of the more you know uh, graphic incidents where it supposedly um, you know involved strangulation of of his uh, of his spouse, um, and. Uh, you know, I guess I just, I, the first thing was to name names. First, the goal here is just to, to put it out there and just know, because I think we, we were talking, right? Like, the names kind of surprised us a little bit. Yeah, there's so many of them. It's just, and, and we're only probably, you know, scratching the surface, right? These are just known. This isn't a lot of, uh, a lot of domestic violence is unreported, so... You know, especially amongst probably superstars, uh, there's money on the line. There's uh, there's the fame uh, aspect of it, where you know it's it, even if the, the the abuse isn't 
the abuse feels like that everybody's against them when you have somebody that famous that you're with if they're they're uh, violent towards you. So who knows really where we're at? I mean, there's just a few, and a, and the only way they ever get out is if the victim says something. So, um, but it is it's it's a really uh, it's a really a uh, sad sad uh, topic. Um, it's amazing how uh, how much it is out there and uh, and that we don't see a way to seem to be having a, a, a good enough effect to make it that it never happens that is you know where it's zero so correct and and uh, you know it's something where you know we take a look at the you know you take a look at the current landscape and um, you know it, it does sort of play into, and we'll get a little bit more into this with our, with our guests later, but we talk about, say, the, the toxic masculinity, you know, and the culture around that. Uh, couldn't have been more exemplified by, like, let's say the Brad, well, I'll use the Brandon Taubman incident and Roberto Ozuna's specific case, uh, you know, to talk about, you know, the, the case uh, around it. So, um, you know, Roberto Ozuna suspended under the Domestic Violence Act excuse me, the domestic violence agreement with the MLB Players Association. Uh, Brandon Taubman, for those who are not familiar, and, and unfortunately for more trivial reasons, most folks are aware of all the Astros transgressions uh, this past season. But one that, uh, you know, and I was worried this was going to happen, but unfortunately it really kind of has. The one that has kind of faded it to the back burner a little bit was the actions of, of Assistant General Manager Brandon Taubman who um, after the uh, game clinching, uh, the series clinching win to send the Astros to the World Series over the Yankees, uh, Taubman actually went and uh, sought out reporters for Sports Illustrated, uh, female reporters who happened to be wearing uh, domestic violence awareness bracelets and decided to use Ozuna as a sort of, uh, I'm not sure what you'd call it, I guess in some places you'd call it billboard material, decided to go up to the uh, reporters and uh, repeatedly yell, um, you know, I'm so fucking glad that we got Ozuna. Hmm. And so, and then of course the Astros uh, closed ranks, decided to defend Tobman, decided to deny the report, um, basically accusing these credible journalists of fabricating the story, uh, you know, and, and unfortunately, yeah, there was, and thankfully, the journalistic community that was present rallied around, corroborated the story immediately and undisputedly, and did leave eventually, lead eventually to Tobin's uh, dismissal. But it, the fact that that, that was the knee-jerk reaction really does speak to the um, the toxic masculinity and the culture. And when you're in a sport that is literally <laughs> entirely male, you know, it's, that's the, these are the sorts of risks and these are the sorts of things that you can encounter from a cultural standpoint. So, um, so we really kind of wanted to, uh, you know, we kind of wanted to talk about that and uh, we're going to with our guests a little bit later. But um, we just kind of wanted to set it up through a baseball perspective before we yeah, got it, into the whole thing. 
and it's it and it's just the I think the sickening part about it in the end is that everybody knows what what's wrong with domestic violence and yet baseball teams just as corporations are more than willing to turn a blind eye to it just to continue working capitalism in their favor and uh and i think that's what we see when we hear Tobman say what he's saying in that uh in that yell that he made um is that basically you know whatever i don't really care about his past i'm glad we got him so that we can get to where we're going and um that's that's an issue right i mean everybody knows that domestic violence is terrible but uh the very few uh in corporate ranks uh are more than willing to say hey whatever let's just do it and and asuna was a cheap one for them to be able to make uh to help we'll get him up to the World Series and give him a chance to win that championship. So correct, and that was yeah. that was a big thing at the time too, right? They were getting a discount. You know, it was fra- it yeah. was widely lauded as a as a great baseball signing because he was he was cheaper because he had yep. these allegations around him, and and so you know it, it sort of does show to the callous nature of it, and so. Uh, that's why we, we've, you know, when you are having these conversations and you're willing to, I, I'm all about rehabilitation. I'm all about second chances. But when you, when you are willing to just turn a blind eye to, to, to things like this in the name of Moneyball, uh, I think, you know, I think this, obviously this topic is not discussed enough. And I think while we are not going to change the world by any stretch of the imagination, I I think by just having the conversation, it's, it's a worthwhile endeavor. So, yeah, uh, I found a stat uh, that I come across while doing a little bit of research for this, where, um, nine out of 10 employees in a company say that domestic violence has a negative impact on their company's bottom line. You know what the corporate executives think? About 43%. Right. 43% of the corporate executives believe that same thing that 90% of employees believe. So there's such a disconnect there. And it's it's because to them, the, the effects are there, right, at the lower levels. So um, they see that that domestic violence is, is a terrible thing for the workplace and that people that are, you know, tied to it are just a cancer to them. But when it... Uh, when it benefits the the corporate, the CEOs and and the stockholders, eh, well, it's, just kind of move along. Some of them do. Just furthers that sort of dehumanization, right? Of you know how we, of the direction that baseball's been headed. You know the sort of get yeah. the most wins for the least amount of money. Uh, so it does play into that narrative a little bit, and uh, for- you're, yeah. You hear people say, "Hey, if, you know the the text or for Houston, it was just like, okay, well, if we didn't get Asuna, somebody else was going to get him, right? Right. It wasn't that he was going to go employed? There was a justification there, and that and that's not true. We don't know that for a fact. If twenty nine right. other teams would have said, "Nah, that's cool, we don't need him," then Houston was the only one that did it. But because Houston picked him up and turn straight to that excuse well it's just like the addison it's just like addison russell right you know addison russell the cubs had to be publicly pressured (coughs) to uh to um you know to to send him down to the minors not even to release him they had to be pressured to send him down to iowa and they want to lose that money right exactly and so like you know it it just really does 
unfortunately speak to the sort of the callous nature of it. And the, by the way, this isn't like a fly by night GM who was, who was over the running the team by this point. This was Theo Epstein, you know, this was Mr. Championship, you know, so Mr. Yep. Wonder GM. So, um, you know, and, and we're not talking about it anymore. You know, we're, we're, we're not talking about it. So I think that's where, that's where the conversation needs to be. And, uh, and that's where we're going to be with our guest here in just a minute. So, um, you know, we're going to, it's, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to, uh, we're going to get to know this from a more victim based non baseball level here. So, uh, so we'll be right back. And we're back. So uh, thanks for hanging with us. Uh, we're going to introduce our guest here. Um, our guest here is Megan McKinnon. Uh, yes, that last name sounds familiar. This is Megan is my wife. And uh, Megan, explain why you're here today. So I am currently working with victims of all crimes, including domestic violence. And I've been a victim advocate for about five to six years at this point previously working in counseling and social work fields as well. Um, so I've worked with, you know, victims of abuse and different crimes, you know, for about 10, 10 years at this point. All right. And the re and part of the, what we wanted to do was to put a non baseball face on a non baseball crime, you know, and to, and so what we wanted to do is just generally kind of like, you know, educate us in, in, in a very basic way, just kind of like fill us in on the things that maybe we don't think about. Cause we only, you know, as baseball fans, we, when we find things out about this, uh, and I'll use the Addison Russell case as an example, we only get one side of the issue. We, we hear about it as like what's happening to this player. And very rarely are we actually, um, given even the victim's name or anything mm -hmm. about the victim or their perspective. So you know, I wanted to lead with a quote and, and then follow into the question a little bit. So, um, you know, referencing the Addison Russell case in particular, Addison Russell, shortstop for the Cubs. Um, those who listen already know who he is. Um, you know, I'm going to quote a, something from uh, Melissa Reedy's, uh, at the time, Lee, Reedy Russell's uh, blog post attached to her Instagram account. And the, the quote reads, um, you know, the first time I was physically mistreated by my spouse, I was in shock. I couldn't wrap my head around what had just happened. Why did he get so angry? What did I do for him to want to put his hands on me? That is, I, from what I gather, is a, is a very familiar refrain from someone in your profession. Can you explain what what you from your experience why it is why it's so difficult for victims of domestic violence uh to to come out and and talk about it in this sphere right so i think a lot of victims of domestic and intimate part, partner violence uh, feel a lot of pressure on themselves to um, fix things to make things better um, in the situation and i think that comes from 
you know, a dynamic of power and control that exists outside of even just physical violence. What happens is a lot of times this this cycle of power control that plays out before there may ever even be a physically violent incident involves emotional abuse, uh, mental abuse, that um, anecdotally um, with victims that I work with on a regular basis is more difficult for them to to deal with than, than physical violence because it involves uh, that manipulation, guilt, jealousy, control, um, on a regular daily basis. And so when you talk about somebody who has been through that kind of dynamic over and over again through a relationship that may have lasted months to years, um, finally making the choice to contact police or try to seek help, um, what people have to understand is at that point they're in the most dangerous time in a relationship, in an abusive relationship that they can, that they can be in. Mm -hmm. um, the time where a um, domestic violence victim is seeking help is the most dangerous most dangerous time in a relationship mm. and and why why is that that is in in part because what can happen after that is a domino effect of continued impact um financially economically um in terms of social support um and in terms of repeat offenses um, and that's why it takes, on average, about seven times for a victim of intimate partner violence to actually end an abusive relationship. Wow. And I think that that's something people don't necessarily know, is that that, that point when they're actually seeking help and calling police or, or whatever it may be, is actually the most dangerous point in their relationship at that point. Because they've already gone from being in a maybe a healthy relationship into an unhealthy relationship all the way into the abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. A lot of them really never got a chance to be in a, a healthy relationship. And so they already started off in an unhealthy relationship mm -hmm. and worked their way to abusive relationship. It just seems that when they get to that abusive relationship part that I would assume that the abuser has already gained as their their version of control and uh it's very difficult for the victim right that's absolutely right and i think when you're dealing with somebody with unlimited financial resources or unlimited social resources um that pressure can be multiplied by 10. you know i think that that's something i've seen a lot with victims that i work with um, after you know the police have been called, there's been an investigation of some kind. Um, victims that I work with typically have a mindset of, of that's related to guilt, that's related to fixing a situation. Um, most of the time, children are involved or other dynamics that people may not know about. And so, when you're dealing, like I said, with somebody who has celebrity status or unlimited financial resources, um, that's a whole other dynamic that victims may have to consider when they're trying to seek help or end an abusive cycle. And so when what sticks out to me the most there is the seven times. So to, to put it in as layman terms as possible here, you could be on average is what you're saying by the seventh abusive incident or the seventh sort of, yeah, I guess the incident this by the seventh incident, that's, Typically, when mo things are just starting to get in motion in terms of uh, a woman in particular protecting herself? Well, I think things, what happens is things get into motion 
and they start to get an emotion and then there is a, a point where it, it starts over or it cuts off, right? Because the cycle starts again, uh-huh. the cycle of power control. Right. Um, and that includes all sorts of abuse, right? We talk a lot about physical, physical violence and physical, physical abuse, but it also includes emotional abuse, economic abuse, um, even things like spiritual abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, things that people don't necessarily think about when they think about domestic violence can have such a toll on somebody's you know, psychology and somebody's identity. Um, and so that's the thing that can then typically keep somebody in that relationship or in that cycle over and over again to the point where, you know, they may, you know, finally be ready to, you know, follow through with actually seeking help and entertaining different resources. Sure. Um, I think the other thing that people have to keep in mind is the lethality of domestic violence. You know, there's some of these tactics that can very frequently lead to death and a lot of times what i hear from victims that i work with is that in the moments that they are calling police and contacting 911 they are in legitimate fear for their lives or they really believe that they will be victims of serious injury right. and so um things like strangulation which i believe is a a right. piece of one of the um, players that you you were discussing we were talking about the jose reyes case mm-hmm. in particular uh, where it, the accusations were that he had strangled mm-hmm. his partner, actually held her by her throat against a glass door mm-hmm. uh, at one point. So, so and, and something to know about strangulation and choking, which is another term people use for it, is that within about five to ten seconds, that can lead to somebody being unconscious. Within minutes, that can lead to death. Um, And so what a lot of offices in the criminal justice system and in law enforcement have been doing is um, using the law and using law enforcement to particularly target strangulation as a way to hold people accountable Mm -hmm. because it can be so lethal. Um, I know another player that you mentioned, um, you had said might might have used... um, Weapons, yes, guns. Or oldest Chapman, mm-hmm. right? And so when you when you talk about using guns in situations, that can increase the chance of of homicide by about five hundred percent. So we're talking about high levels of potential lethality in these situations, and that's something I think that people have to understand about what victims are facing in those moments. Mm-hmm. They're facing possible death or serious injury. Oh, and that would be a part of the reason why. Um the abused stay in those relationships. I mean, if there are weapons in the home, I mean, the fear factor is just is so high because they've probably already been threatened by it. Or even if they haven't, they know that that the 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 quickness of, of a bullet or a knife mm-hmm. or strangulation yes. is basically a weapon also, right? Exactly. Using a rope or using like a scarf or a necklace or something like that, that, the, that they're already wearing. Um, it's uh it's that much scarier so they stay in the in the relationship they don't try to escape for the fear of that point getting to that point because it's probably in in the back of their mind like okay well i can live with the abuse that i'm getting i can't live with getting shot that's right and so you know when we talk about this you know it's what I found, Jim, when we talked initially about doing this episode, one of the things that kind of blew me away is that it's just not talked about that much. And, and so we, I, I parallel this with something that has been talked about quite a lot and for good, obviously, completely valid reasons is, say, the Me Too movement, for example. 
So can can you explain the you know why why do we see like you know so much coverage on one end but maybe so little on this end? Like, do you, is it because of the lack of reporting from victims? How do you explain that sort of parallel? Sure. I mean, I think that ultimately domestic violence and, and many sexual assaults are very connected. As we know now, many sexual assaults occur between parties that know each other on some level. Mm-hmm. Many occur in intimate partner relationships. Um, but I also think that there's a lot of components of domestic violence that are buried that are, you know, below the radar for all of the reasons we've talked about. Um, I think that, you know, a lot there's still a lot of victim victim blaming that right. that goes on in domestic violence um and this is true with sexual assault as well but certainly with domestic violence that um people have difficulty understanding how somebody can continually be in a relationship where they're they feel like they're in danger over and over again over many years or many months um and so i think that that's that can be difficult for the public to understand I'm sure you see this quite a bit, but can you can you elaborate a little bit on like how easy it is or why we see such dismissal mm-hmm. of these of these accusations? Well, um, I think that, you know, it's difficult for people to talk about these topics. Mm-hmm. I think it's very uncomfortable for some people. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be difficult for people to put themselves in other people's shoes in these scenarios. Um, something that's interesting about domestic violence, some of the t- statistics, actually, and I know you guys are very driven by statistics right. on the show, and so right. <laughs> um, I wanted to come armed with some of that, but, you know, really the stati- statistics show that one in four women are victims of sexual, or, uh, I'm sorry, of domestic violence. One mm. in four m- women are victims of domestic violence in their intimate partner relationships, and that's a that's a large number. That's shocking to so me. So we're, we're talking about... Um, you know, women that you know at this point, right? right? And we're talking about this cutting across um, ethnicity, race, s- socioeconomic status at this point. Right. Um, and that's something to, to keep in mind um, because I think that it's buried for all of the reasons that are uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that people have difficulty with the idea that it continues to happen even in, in situations that appear to be obvious or that people or victims recant, um, mm-hmm. meaning that they take back what they say initially and try to walk back their initial reports. I think that's a big issue that people have. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's something that people don't understand is the, the negative impact on a victim of reporting a crime and how that actually impacts their lives economically, socially, um, in an isolation sense, and I'm sure that in a you know from a celebrity or, or athletic baseball stance, you can probably multiply multiply that by a large number right. when you're talking about a celebrity status. To me, it seems like you know uh, you know one out of every five women have been raped, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's something like 18% is the number on that. Where men, it's like one out of every 70, 71 or right. something, I think is what I saw. Exactly. So it gets to be a hard for them to relate to each other mm-hmm. at, at a point, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like, well, I, d- I don't believe it's happening as often as you say it's happening. Well, mm-hmm. it's only happening to your your side or your gender every one and a half percent of the time right Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. yet over here it's like 18 percent of the time it's Mm -hmm. way more frequently so Mm -hmm. 
I think there's a, a disconnect there. It feels like uh, mm-hmm. um, we have a more of a tendency to say in the baseball world when somebody's accused of domestic violence and then they only receive a 30 game suspension and and then in Twitter land it goes to the point where it's like oh okay hey um, I, I so and so got this right and it's like I don't know why he got 30 games he was never found guilty in the court oh, right okay. because a lot of things change right a lot yes. of pleas come out they plead to something lesser because yes. probably the celebrity status helps in, in court sure. so and, and all of those things, I mean, like the stuff we were talking about, even even outside of the, the celebrity status, you know, victims very frequently, in my experience, even just outside of working among celebrities, victims frequently of domestic violence will recant their stories um, or walk things back, minimize. Minimize is, is really the most common mm-hmm. thing that, that victims of domestic violence will do. It wasn't that bad. It wasn't really like that. Yes, he did this, but it wasn't really that serious. Mm-hmm. Wasn't it was the first time anything like this has ever happened. And so those are some of the things that, you know, we'll hear. And a lot of that has to do with those other impacts we talked about. Um, somebody who has children with this person, who then has to explain the absence of this person to their children. Somebody who relies on this person for um, economic support either completely or at least partially to survive somebody who somebody who relies on this person for social support um and so the isolation that has probably already been occurring throughout the relationship gets amplified further by the report of violence um so you're absolutely right because you could hear people all the time there they say well um, if somebody's going to accuse somebody of something as heinous as domestic violence or uh, rape, uh, yeah. they say, well, if that person is crying wolf, basically, then they should face the same penalty that they were crying wolf for. And in essence, wow. though, there's a really good chance that the reason why they're no longer crying wolf is just for self-preservation. Right. They're going back into their cocoon of, okay, I'm, a, I'm, I'm really exposed to the person that's uh, violent towards me at this moment, when if I would have just stayed in that cocoon, eh, I only get a little bit of it. I won't. I won't have to worry about probably the worst case scenario at that point, right? So yes. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you, so we hear a lot of that on Twitter or social yeah, media exactly. in general. But. No, yeah, Jim, you hit the nail on the head on that. You know, I think that. Um, there is a lot of backlash to that and I think that um, that's what's missing is that the internal actual experience of a victim going through that you Mm -hmm. know I think that um, you know it is a lot of self-preservation at that point and trying to survive you know yeah Kimmy could you help us understand the the difficulty of getting out of a relationship uh that's abusive um you can have your kids involved uh so it's more than just yourself that that you're worried about now at this point because i would from my understanding is that if there's domestic violence there's a chance that there's child abuse also inside that home um you can have pets involved in the situation you know or furry loved ones right Mm -hmm. um but to be able to get out of it it's got to be a lot of challenges. Uh, you can have your the violent spouse or, or loved one or well, following you, right? Mm-hmm. They're stalking, stalking you at stalking, this point. Yes. They're controlling we did, everything yes. about you. We talked about stalking, I talk, yeah. I work with a they, lot of stalking victims. Mm-hmm. 
there's GPS on your phones or GPS in your cars and everything else. Mm-hmm. And so leaving a relationship has to be difficult because where do you go? I mean, if you're going to use, say, uh, a helpline, mm-hmm. if they're monitoring your phone or you, how do you do that? Um, how do you reach out to like we're always saying, hey, my DMs are open. Well, mm-hmm. if they have access to your social media, you can't hit up my DM. They're going to find out about it. And then what happens after that? It's, it just it, tell us how difficult it is for the victim to get out one of that controlling domestic violence relationship. Absolutely. You're hitting the nail on the head of what we talked about earlier with power and control, right? This all leads back to that um, outside of just the physical or sexual violence. It really is about that power and control. And the manipulation factor um, we see a lot with stalking victims what we see often is that um, defendants meaning the offenders will spoof their cell phone numbers meaning use multiple different um, cell phone numbers or social media accounts to continually stalk victims of crime um, in their intimate partner relationships to make it more difficult to track them and to document um, people, like you said, wow. may use GPS abilities, um, may track people's phones, things of that nature, may show up at people's houses. What we found with our stalking victims is that typically um, our first stalking incident may occur shortly after the most serious incident of, of actual physical violence. And the reason being is after a, a, an incident of physical violence, whether somebody may actually report that to police or not, um, the victim may actually seek to have a, in layman's term, restraining order or temporary protective order against that offender. And so once that offender actually violates that protective order, it becomes a stalking situation because they are now violating a court order to stay away from this person, okay? And so what happens then, we see those aggravated stalking cases come up on the docket, um, and that typically actually succeeds serious physical incidents and so it's all part of different patterns and so when you're talking about why is it difficult for a victim to actually leave these situations um it's because it's these different dynamics are coming at victims from all different sides they're they're not usually people who are thinking solely about their own safety and well-being they may be thinking about their children's safety and well-being thinking about the offender safety and well-being. A lot of victims I speak to are people who want to help somebody, you know, move past mental health issues, drug and alcohol issues. Um, they want somebody to be a part of their children's lives. They want support and help, meaning they don't want to be isolated from their friends and family during this this time in their lives. And so, um, you know, they're they're faced with a lot of different factors that make it more difficult post-reporting rather than pre-reporting in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And that also includes economic, like we talked about before, whether somebody's able to work a job or somebody's able to access, you know, economic support through an offender. So yeah, could uh, could the victim move? Can the victim mm-hmm. afford right. to exactly. move to an area where the the children aren't going to the same school right. to help avoid uh, possible stalking there? Right? right. So I mean, it's a, a, a to get away from it isn't just as easy as walking out the door and, right. and trying to get some help. It's it's changing everything because the it seems to me if the the violent offender will be doing everything they can to get that control back that's right and so you know how can you know we were talking about this a little bit earlier like how can you think 
the baseball going public or, or I would just say like the general public be better be better partners in this like how do you think that we can you know not just specifically from a baseball standpoint you know but just just the general public and you know be better partners and more supportive of victims and, and how we react to it, to to these things sure that's a that's a big question but i think it it starts with um empathy and believing women um, like we've heard a lot out of the, the Me Too movement at this point when it mm -hmm. comes to sexual assault. The, the same goes with domestic violence, the same idea. Um, believing victims, supporting victims, and adhering to a victim-centered approach. Um, I think this is true across you know incidents that happen in celebrity, celebrity culture, uh, which probably include baseball culture, right? Mm -hmm. um, athletic culture, um, in terms of... Um, identifying with the offender, identifying with the athlete, focusing on their experience of right. whatever ha whatever is happening. And so um, the casual fan or public can, you know, make efforts to um, expand their knowledge and expand their understanding of empathy towards what right. a victim might be going through, which might be outside of, you know, somebody's normal capacity or normal life situation, right? Um, so it can be, you know, a challenge, but I think it's it's worth it, you know, because that, that, that's what leads to actually believing women when, when it comes to reporting these situations. Right, right. And it just sets your fandom to the side so that you can deal with an actual real-life issue. I mean, we're all in love with the game of baseball. That's why we're here on this podcast. Um, but... Domestic violence is, is real life. It's it's happening. It, it's hurting people. And to disregard it so that you can have X player on your team so that maybe you win a game or two more and so you justify not believing the victim. I mean, get over that hurdle. If we, as fans, let's just get over that hurdle and, and then we can start really getting into the details of it and start supporting, start helping those that are, are having that trouble, you know, believe them. And, and I think we can start, I mean, I don't know if there's a, you know, can ever be zero ever, right? But we can at least start digging into those numbers and, and start knocking them down because one in five or one in four being uh, physically violated, I mean, Wow, right? Yeah. That's that's you know, sit at a table, go to a restaurant, and picture twenty five percent of the people at that restaurant uh, that have to to go through this. That's amazing. Yeah, that's right. It's not you know, that's the biggest thing is I think you know, and I think we talked about this earlier, but for me, it's you know, I challenge baseball fans in particular i challenge them to think whenever these accusations come up when domingo herman when julio uh, juris familia when julio arias or odabel herrera rather than talking about it you know something happening to the player let's let's shift our thinking to you know what has this player done you know what about the victim you know and so naming victims is not something that everyone's comfortable with, you know, victims in particular. Am I right in that? That's like, right. Mm -hmm. So so I'm not ready to, that's a bridge, you know, I'm not saying we should name victims, but I'm saying that we should, we should give them as much of the stage 
in these sorts of things as the players. We should we should make it think as more of the stage, really, because they're the victims. We need to, you know, I challenge listeners and and the baseball public to to really shift our thinking of rather than you know these accusation being something that happens to the players that prevents them from doing something you know we're talking 30 games you know you know some some cases 15 games you know uh, the nationals were further out of that in the nl east in may this year you know and then they won the world series you know, you're talking a DL stint. Yeah. You know, think about that. You're, you, you know, some of these guys um, got a DL stint for, yeah. a, you know, not for, for these heinous crimes. So, and, that, I, and don't and don't think that because they've done they did the crime and they did their time, fifteen games, and then it's all good. The guy, the, the guy's right back to normal. He's just you and me walking down the street now. Yeah, mm-hmm. Jur- yeah. Juris Familia is still an active, employed, major league relief pitcher, and we need to think about that. He got fifteen games, and you know, I encourage anyone to think about everything we, you know, that you've heard here. You know what I mean? Like Megan was referring to earlier. I mean. These women spend their entire lives evading things much more serious than, you know, elbow problems. So, you know, these are things worth considering. And, you know, this is not, you know, this it's not like, Jim, it's not like we approached this topic with, with great joy of having to cover it, but it deserves the time. And, and um, you know, I want to thank my wife, Megan, for coming on and, and helping kind of fill us in a little bit on this yeah thanks for giving us a hands-on view thank you thanks for having me and uh until then uh, we'll be uh we'll be back on thursday sounds good all right thanks